This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. Hello, Hearts of Oak. Thank you for joining us on another interview. Today is with Matthew Letizier, and someone who I've wanted on for a while, haven't got around asking him, asked him, and he came on. And I've got to know Matt over the last uh, over the last year. He's one of the many individuals who stood up against the COVID tyranny. But for those who don't know Matt, maybe you don't live in the UK, don't follow football, he is a renowned footballer, a legend of the game. He played for Southampton, a single team, for 16 years. He was known as one of the uh, greatest creative midfielders of the English game. He was uh, a goal scorer regularly, I think scored every three games he scored. Uh, He was a penalty taker maestro. He did miss one penalty, 47 out of 48 in the back of the net. And of course, he suffered cancel culture. He got cancelled whenever he tweeted about Ukraine with a different view than what is allowed and a different view on COVID than what was allowed. And he was pulled in and sacked from his position as a Sky Sports pundit. Every Saturday, he would be on our TV screens uh, with a team on Sky Sports for 15 years. He was a mainstay in the UK, giving us that commentary on football games on a Saturday and a Sunday. He was sacked and he now has taken on a new role on leading the fight against the COVID tyranny. You can watch his interviews every every Monday, Monday evening at 8pm UK time, 3pm Eastern time, 12pm Pacific time. And in this interview, Matt shares his background, shares his story as a footballer, move into his time as a pundit, his 15 years with Sky, how that finished, how he suffered that cancel culture, and then how he has been part of a new wave of individuals standing up against the COVID tyranny that we face. He's someone who's outspoken, who's bold, who's courageous, and yet is so uh, mild and actually is the last person you'd think of as an individual to stand up. His personality is one that you connect with so easily, and I think that comes across in the interview. So I Hope you enjoyed the interview with Matt. Make sure and follow him, uh, MattLatis7, on Getter, on Twitter. Follow his his many thoughts and catch his weekly wisdom with a guest every Monday evening. Thank you for watching. And hello, Hearts of Oak. Thank you once again for joining us on a pre-record. And it is an absolute delight to have the football legend himself, Mr. Matt Letizier. Matt, thank you so much for coming on today. My pleasure, Pete. Good to see you. Great to have you on. And if people are not following you already, they can follow you. There is your handle, at MattLatis7, on Getter, on Twitter. I think those are probably the two best places to follow you. They are indeed, yeah. I've uh, I've not really on any of the other stuff, so uh, they're the, they're the two best ones. Those two, and you can obviously we'll get into your uh, weekly show on Monday evenings, eight o'clock on Getter. We'll talk about that a little bit later on, but that's where people can find you if they're looking for some latest wisdom each and every week. It'll be eight p.m. on a Monday, um, and for those of you who are watching a. Hearts of Oak interview at 8 o'clock. You can, of course, watch Matt after or vice versa. 
take your pick on the order you want, but it's there for you, Absolutely. the viewers, to make use of. Now, Matt, if, if you've gone from a footballer, you've from a football legend, from a pundit to a, a COVID pundit, I guess, but I think we'll start with your football side before moving on to the last few years. Um, and you were regarded as possibly the the best, the most creative midfielder uh, in the English game at the time. Um, and I even read somewhere you were called Le God. How did you cope <laughs> with that? Um, yeah, I took that with a pinch of salt, to be honest. <laughs> um, that kind of came kind of mid-90s type thing when I was uh, probably at the top of my game, scoring a lot of goals for Southampton. We stayed in the Premier League by the skin of our teeth on on occasions and uh, I was scoring a lot of goals in those days and um, yeah, the Southampton fans had taken me to their hearts and uh, had, had given me that nickname, um, which was, uh, which was very nice, you know, but as I say, took it with a pinch of salt um, uh, and just, uh, and just got on with my job really. You were, were, were Southampton, did, were you with them when they were promoted? Uh, what was kind of that 16, was a 16 years like with Southampton? Um, no, they were already in the in the first division uh, as it okay. was when I first started. So I joined Southampton in 1985 as an apprentice, or on the YTS scheme as it was back then, on twenty six pound a week. Um, and then I signed professional forms. How things October. have changed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not many. Uh, signed professional forms in October 1986, and that's when I became. I'd already made my debut in the first team at that point um, in the first division, uh, and so yeah, that was that was kind of where it all kicked off and then six years into my career um uh, my professional career the the uh, first division changed into the premier league sky came along pumped loads of money in um and kind of football really kind of took off i guess in terms of the um the way that it was televised around the world was was it just that southampton was one of the closest teams to guernsey <laughs> Um, well, it's funny how it works, actually, because uh, actually Oxford were the first um, football team to, to show an interest in me. Uh, and I actually uh, left home at 14 and went to live in Oxford uh, with a friend of my dad's uh, who was close to the board at Oxford at the time. And they wanted me to train with their uh, youth sides um, at the weekends and in the evenings and stuff. Um, and so I left Guernsey uh, and um, went to school in Oxford. Uh, and I think... I think I lasted two days uh, at the school. Um, it was horrific. Hated every second of it. Um, nobody spoke to me. It was a massive school. Um, and I kind of just went, I'm, t I'm not ready for this. Um, uh, and so I actually, after just being in Oxford for a few weeks, I, I went back to Guernsey to finish my schooling there. Uh, Southampton showed an interest in me because I played in a, uh, an under-15 game in Hampshire, uh, in Southampton, where I was spotted. Um, and again, that was an interesting one because I, uh, I was playing out of position in that game. I was always a centre midfielder uh, for my school and my club team. Uh, and this particular game, the coach had just asked me if I'd go and play on the right wing so he could have a look at a couple of other players. I said, yeah, no problem. So probably one of my first ever games on the right wing, probably. Uh, and the Southampton scout saw me, um, obviously thought I was a right winger um, and invited me over as such. And I came over, uh, had a week's trial. Uh, where I was played as a right winger the whole time. And I was just, you know, I was quite young and I didn't really want to go, actually, that's not my position. <laughs> I was just happy to be there. So I did my best as a right winger and uh, that was good enough to be signed as an associated schoolboy. Um, the great thing was I was able to finish my schooling back in Guernsey 
uh, and I didn't have to make that decision on whether to come to Southampton or not until I was 16, nearly nearly 17. Now, your career, um, an illustrious career uh, with one club, which we'll get onto in a moment, but I, I read that you were the first play, midfielder in the Premiership to score 100 goals. And um, what, what was it like hitting some of those milestones as a professional footballer? Um, yeah, I mean, I've got to be honest, back in those days, there wasn't really such uh, a hyper focus on stats. You know, the, the whole stats thing, all every, anybody really cared about was how many goals you scored. You know, they, they didn't really go into um, massive milestones and uh, all that kind of stuff. There was there was not that kind of um, stat-based um, punditry going on at that time, you know, whereas today, I mean, you get all sorts of stats coming out and you just never existed back in the day when I was playing. Um, so although, you know, it was nice to get to, a, to 100 Premier League goals, in fact, my, my 100th Premier League goal was my last goal. Um, for Southampton, although I do contest that a little bit because I had one taken off of me, which shouldn't have been um, by the dubious goals panel. Um, and there was hardly, you know, wasn't, there was hardly, I don't remember any big fuss being made about me being, the, you know, the first midfielder to score 100 Premier League goals. I don't remember a big fuss being made about, I think it was Alan Shearer probably who was the first to 100 as a striker. And I don't remember a massive fuss being made about that back in those days. But today, if it had been happening, you know, it would be massive news. Now, your career is so different from today in that you spent more or less your, your whole career, um, apart from two years at the end, you spent it with Southampton, which is a world away from today's world, I guess, with agents and big money moves regularly happening um, and no such thing as a, a boyhood club that people want to stay with. But what was, I think I read you tweeted a couple of years ago that you uh, were approached by Liverpool. I mean, I was just thinking you and Robbie Fowler together, Liverpool team, that would have been, oh, beautiful. Uh, tell us about that, about staying with Southampton and kind of the the pressures or whether your eyes did look around at other teams and what happened there. Yeah, so I had a few chances to leave. Um, the first one came in uh, 1990. I was 21 and uh, the team that I supported as a boy, which was Spurs, they tried to buy me. Um, and I'll be honest, yes, my head was turned a little bit because of that fact that they were my my team. Um, but I, I decided in the end not to go. Uh, I was quite young at the time, just about to get married. Uh, so I had a lot to take into consideration. Um, and I chose to stay. And then a couple of years later, Liverpool were interested. Um, uh, and again, I was, you know, quite happy where I was at Southampton. Um, I enjoyed the area that I lived in. The fans were always brilliant to me. So there was lots of things that, that came into my mind. And then again, in 1995, Chelsea tried to buy me, um, which, which was an interesting uh, because one of the directors at Chelsea at the time was a big fan of mine, um, a guy called Matthew Harding, who, um, you know, most Chelsea fans remember passed away in a helicopter crash a couple of years after this particular uh, incident where he, he'd phoned up Southampton Football Club. And... Um, he rang the director of football, who was Laurie McMenemy, legendary Southampton manager, but was director of football at that point. And he said, oh, look, Laurie, we, should, we want to buy Matt Letizia. This is uh, April 1995. Uh, and he said, we want to buy Matt Letizia. And Laurie said, well, we don't want to sell him. He said, uh, and I know the lad's happy here. He said, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, it, there's nothing going to happen. And Laurie turned around and said, in fact, because Matthew was quite a wealthy guy. Uh, and Laurie turned around to Matthew and said, well, in fact, the only way Matt Letizia will ever be your player is if you buy Southampton Football Club. 
And, uh, and so Matthew Harding turned around to Laurie and went, oh, he said, that's a good idea. He said, I, he said, I, could, buy, I could buy Southampton and change their name to Chelsea on Sea. <laughs> so this, is, this, uh, this conversation ended. Laurie thought nothing more of it until a couple of days later when in the post, uh, Laurie received a cheque. Um, uh, and on that cheque, uh, it was made out to Chelsea on Sea for £7 million and it was signed by Matthew Harding. Um, and Laurie had kept this cheque all these years, uh, put it in a little frame. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I didn't know about this story until, until just a few years ago when Laurie told me. Uh, and he said, look, he said, um, he said, this story was about you, really. He said, I've kept this all this time. He said, but I think, you know, you should have it. So, uh, so I have in my office. Uh, I have here a little ah. cheque <laughs> for seven million. Seven I don't know if you read that. Chelsea yeah. on seat, seven million quid, Matthew <laughs> Harding. There you go. Do you know how frustrating it is to look at that every day, realizing you can't catch it? <laughs> um, oh dear. Tell us about your. I think you were also known as someone who would always put the ball in the back of the net for a penalty. Um, although I think you were not you were one off. Yeah. T- tell <laughs> us about forty-seven out of forty-eight. T- tell us about that. Uh, that one you didn't put in the back of the net. Okay, so uh, I think it was the twenty um, fourth of March, nineteen ninety three. Not that I'm bitter about it at all. You can remember, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a penalty against Nottingham Forest. Mark Crossley was in goal, um, uh, and yeah, Mark did very well. He he, he timed his feint to perfection. Um, so he kind of went to go one way because I kept my eye on the goalie as long as I could when I was taking my penalties. And he went to go one way. So I went to hit it the other way, but he just went a little bit one way, sprung the other way, saved it. Uh, and the worst bit about it all was that he actually parried it straight back to me. Uh, and from about seven yards out with my left foot, I managed to put the rebound over the bar. I think I was in so much shock that I'd actually missed a penalty in the first place that I didn't really concentrate on the rebound. And uh, I think I was more embarrassed about missing the rebound than I was about missing the penalty, quite frankly. Well, when you look back, I mean, what, 450 games or more more uh, about that with um, with with Southampton, uh, when you kind of look back at that kind of 16-year year career, are there, are there games that stand out? Is there certain goals that stand out? Um, kind of how do you look back and see that part of your life? Um, I look back on it with a great deal of pride, uh, to be honest. I know I didn't win anything, um, but I was I was playing in a team that wasn't really expected to win anything and, and really kind of most of the time staying in the Premier League was actually, you know, uh, an achievement given that we had one of the smallest grounds in the league, one of the smallest budgets in the league. Um, so from that point of view, um, you know, there was no, there was no big medals to, to actually talk about, but yeah, there were matches that stood out uh, and still stand out to this day. Um, you know, it normally involved beating one of the big teams down at uh, down at the Dell, uh, our old ground, which was a, an amazing place. Uh, we, I remember beating Liverpool 4-1 back in 1989. Uh, they were the best team in the land at the time. They were unbeaten for the season. Still are. In October. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brentford might have something to say about uh, that. Yeah. <laughs> that was a shocker. Uh- so, uh, so yeah, there was that. There was that game. We beat them four-one. Could have been seven or eight. Honestly, we were yeah. brilliant that day. And um, and there were some some great victories against you know the man when Manchester United were in their in their pomp and they came to the Dell. We beat them three-one one year where they changed their shirts at half-time. Uh, the following year we beat them six-three. Um, and the following year after that we beat them one-nil. So we had three years in a row where we 
where we turned them over, which was you know quite a special thing to do, really, given how good that they were at the time. At the end of a career, I mean, footballers have what fifteen years, uh, whatever, in the professional game, and then maybe more, and then it's something different that ends and it comes to an abrupt halt. Uh, for for you, you went into becoming a a TV pundit. Uh, there are those that go into coaching and management. Um, what was that like for you? How how did you envisage life after? the game and why was it in TV Pundit that you went into? Um, I, I mean, my at the end of my career, all I envisaged was playing golf as many times a week as I possibly could, quite frankly. <laughs> um, sadly, I didn't have enough money to be able to do that for the rest of my life. Uh, so I did have to get a job as well. Um, and so uh, I was kind of freelancing a little bit for, for a, lot of, uh, a lot of media Um uh, and I was always fairly comfortable in front of the camera. I didn't mind talking with it, with the camera on me. Um, and the Sky Sports asked me if I do the, the midweek soccer special, uh, which I did just before I retired, actually. It was a couple of months before I retired. So I did one of those shows. And then for a couple of years after I'd finished playing, I was doing, you know, filling in for when George Best and Rodney Marsh, those kind of guys were on holiday. I'd fill in a little bit. And then, um, and so I didn't really have a, a proper job. Uh, I was just dosing around, doing a little bit of work here and there, playing lots of golf. And um, and then Sky Sports, Rodney Marsh got sacked, uh, and I was asked if I would do every week on there. Uh, so I did that until the end of the season, and the following year I was uh, I was offered a contract with them. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, that was 2005, uh, and that, that, that two-year contract uh, turned into um, 15 years altogether at the end um, until uh, – 2020 when uh, when the world changed tell us because i thought uh donald trump was the one that you don't want to have a twitter account but then he used a twitter account um tell tell us about all because lots of people make comments they make observations i thought it was absolutely normal and fine to have a a viewpoint a different viewpoint we've learned differently over the last few years but i, th- I think it was originally a, a tweet about Ukraine, and suddenly um, you were the bad guy. You were the enemy. You were. Uh, there was one before that. I think there was there was there was one before that that I tweeted about. I think it was. Um, oh, let me. Which was the first one that really got me in trouble? Um, you should have it. these framed like that. Check. <laughs> you should have these framed. Yeah, it was. It was one about. Um, Oh, the police uh, enforcing masks on trains and something, uh, and it was something. It was something about following orders and um, you know uh, the people that were hiding Anne Frank, uh, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, that one I got. I was, I was at a golf day, um, and I I kind of ret- I only retweeted it. I, that's all I did. I just retweeted it because I thought it was quite appropriate. And then uh, I looked at my phone like halfway through the round of golf, and I was like, boys. Why am I getting loads of missed phone calls? And why is my Twitter account gone mental? <laughs> and then my agent rang me up and he went, could you just take down that retweet, please? <laughs> I was like, what? What's wrong with that? Um, and uh, and so, yeah, that was the first one that kind of went, mm, okay. Uh, and then I retweeted something basically when the war started uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I retweeted something which kind of highlighted the fact that during the times of war, uh, both sides will engage in propaganda. 
uh, and won't always tell you the truth. Um, and apparently, yeah, that was enough to get me cancelled by all sorts of people, um, including my agent who ditched me <laughs> just after that. Um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it's been an interesting time um, to have an opinion that goes against uh, the government and the mainstream narrative, the media narrative. Is, uh, it's been interesting times, but um, I've learned a lot in the last couple of years. It's, uh, it's been fascinating. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still sit here quite happy um with my uh, views on the world i think the longer this thing has been going on i think the more uh, my views two years ago have been justified um nobody will ever say that nobody will ever apologize but uh, i don't need apologies from anybody um all i want is for for some sanity to return to the world basically I, did no one tell you that only Gary Lineker and Gary Neville are allowed a point of view on Twitter? Did you miss that memo? <laughs> I must have missed that memo. I don't think, I mean, I got sacked from Sky Sports in August of 2020. And um, uh, I think um, they weren't particularly happy some of the, you know, going against the mainstream narrative. But I also, I, I was doing and I knew it would get me in trouble, but I just felt like it was the right thing to do. You know, I was criticizing the mainstream media, uh, the news media. And that obviously included Sky News, who were uh, who were obviously part of uh, the company that I was working for. But um, I, I felt like I, I could not not say anything because what I was seeing from the mainstream media was absolutely horrific, and what they did to people psychologically uh, with the fear mongering was absolutely a crime against humanity. And I'll stand by that point to this day. Uh, and they have been absolutely despicable and disgusting. And um, uh, quite frankly. Uh, I have no time for for anybody who engaged in that kind of stuff, knowing what they were doing to our population. Well, and I, I think what you experienced, many people have come across this, uh, this cancel culture. Um, but was it that you brought Sky Sports into disrepute? What was I, I, I'm guessing on your contract, you didn't have a list of things you could or could not say on social media. Um, I'm assuming yeah. you didn't really have restrictions. So you weren't going against any contractual obligations. No. So I was actually, uh, I, I was sat in this very seat that I'm sat in right now um, on a Zoom call, um, which uh, was set up on the pretext of talking about the coming season because it was about a week before the season was about to start. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had this invite for this Zoom call with the uh, head of Sky Sports Football. Um, and when I clicked onto the Zoom link, the Zoom link there was uh, another person on the Zoom call who I, I didn't recognize. Uh, and as soon as I saw that, I was like, um, okay, who's this bloke? Uh, and at that point, I thought, yeah, this isn't good. <laughs> and um and so yeah i was i was told pretty much after 15 years um the conversation was uh we're really sorry matt but there's no work for you anymore and we're letting you go um and that and that was that and i just said oh i said oh okay um i said uh, so i said is this anything to do with what i've been posting on social media uh, and uh and, and he was a bit sheepish and he and he just went um well, you know, we do have to take into consideration the uh, um, the reputation of our company. Uh, and so I just went, oh, right. I said, that's quite strange because you didn't really seem to care very much about the reputation of your company when Jamie Carragher spat at that little girl and you gave me his yeah. job back. Uh, 
Yeah. And uh, and at that point, the conversation ended pretty quickly. Uh, I was told that he's not allowed to speak about other people, uh, and that was the end of the Zoom call. So uh, so yeah, and that was how my fifteen years of loyal service to uh, Sky Sports ended. So there was no comeback. There was no put forward your case. There was no you're out on gardening leave for a month or so. It was just that was it finished. That was it gone. Yeah, there's nothing. Uh, it was um, you know. Uh, there was obviously some uh, severance to uh, to negotiate, and we did that. Um, which, uh, yeah, and that that was kind of that was it. It was just quite unceremonious, um, you know. Given that I just spent almost as much time as I did at, at my time at Southampton at, at Sky Sports, it was a pretty sad way to end it all, really. Um, well, with that revelation that a footballer has opinions or an ex-footballer <laughs> has opinions, what, what was that like with? kind of colleagues, friends, your world had been football up until that, or out of the golf course a little bit, but football. <laughs> uh, what was what was the response from kind of those around you uh, whenever, initially, whenever you'd put a tweet up and then whenever you'd lost your position with Sky Sports? Um, it was kind of, I kind of mixed, I guess. Um, you know, some people just ignored me. Um some people would text me privately and, and say, you know, well done for standing up and, you know, it's disgusting what's happened to you and, you know, the, sky, the soccer exactly isn't what it used to be now. It's, it's, it's shocking and um, all that kind of stuff, um, which was nice and it's nice to have that kind of support. Um, but, yeah, I was kind of probably a little bit disappointed that uh, some people were taken in by the, uh, by the propaganda um, and kind of basically thought that I actually was a conspiracy theorist and that I'd lost my mind, um, which, you know, is how the media tried to portray me, uh, which is what they do to people who, who go against what they're saying, you know, and, and that's, I understand that, that world and I know what they're doing. So it hasn't really affected me um, because I, I know what their game is. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of people out there who still believe a single word that comes out of the mainstream media mouth and, uh, and, do think of me that way but i have to say <clears throat> out in the out in public it's a very very different world to the world on social media um you know the reactions <clears throat> that i get from people in public uh are, are so much more positive i think i've had one person in nearly three years now uh who shouted something at me in public about being an anti-vaxxer uh and it was a drunk bloke at cheltenham at the races uh, and that's the only time I can remember anybody in public ever saying anything to me. However, I've had hundreds of people who have come up and shaking my hand and saying, thank you very much for giving people like us a voice because the mainstream media won't let us be heard in your standing up. And, and that's been, you know, quite, quite uplifting, um, to be honest. And it's nice to, to have those people come, just come and shake your hand, random strangers come and shake your hand and say, you know, we're with you. We know what you're saying um and you know and that point of view hasn't been allowed to be aired uh, on the mainstream media and that's one of the things that's really annoyed me over the last couple of years there's been no balance in the media at all um there's been no one able to uh, contradict the narrative uh, there's been no debate on television uh ofcom have strangled everybody from talking about certain subjects uh, and they cancel people that don't have the right opinion um, and I'm sorry, but that's that's not a world I want to live in, and I will fight against that world as long as I'm on this planet. What what has it been like falling into this new role? Um, I think during COVID, 
people have learned either sink or swim, either you stand up and uh, stick with what you believe mm. and come hell or high water, uh, or you submit to whatever the latest instruction you're being given on mm-hmm. by the government. Um, and you've stepped up to that role. You've fallen into it, but then you've got back up and you've said, I'm, I'm going to uh, be a person who leads on this pushback against the tyranny that we face. What had, what has that been like? You've given us a, a touch of kind of the responses from colleagues and friends and things, um, but it is a, a whole new role uh, outside that football world. You've stepped into something quite different. You now have that uh, weekly show. You'd kid Shemrani on the other night, an uh, absolutely fantastic individual. We've had her on a couple of times. I've met her. Um, but it's that connecting with people. To tell us about that over the last um, over the last two years. Yeah, well, obviously, what went on on Twitter with with people being cancelled and you're not allowed to talk about certain things. I was actually amazed. Actually, I was one of the few people that uh, on uh, on our side of the debate that didn't actually get any suspensions from Twitter or anything. <laughs> so I was I was probably a little bit careful sometimes about what I posted, I guess. But um, uh, so I, I never got banned. But uh, Getter came along. Um, and was much more of a, a free speech platform. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I was more than happy to, to get myself on there. Uh, and then after a few months, I was contacted by uh, the CEO, Jason Miller, uh, and said, you know, we'd like, we'd like you to try and help us promote the site um, and, uh, and do some live streams on there. And I was like, oh, okay, I've not, not done that before. This will be interesting. So I thought, why not? Let's go for it. Um, and they've been, you know, they've been received with it really well. Um, you know, there's uh, um, a, a real hardcore following on there that, um, that, that tune in every Monday night at eight o'clock. Uh, I've called it the flip side because that's what I'm trying to um, promote to people is to is to get people to see the other side of the argument. So a lot of the people that I've had on are people that have been censored um, uh, on on other platforms. Um, and yeah, it's been fascinating. I've learned, I've, I've learned so much stuff listening to the guests that I've had on. Uh, and I, you know, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, if, um, if the mainstream media, uh, have really gone for you and try to, to cancel you and paint you as some kind of conspiracy theorist, um, I've actually learned now that actually the people that they're doing that to, uh, are probably over the target and they don't like what they're hearing. So that's why the, the media react in that way. Um, and so, yeah, it's been, it's been great fun. Um, uh, and um, yeah, hopefully it will continue for a long time. And you haven't just stayed in the area of sport. I mean, uh, you had Pat Cash on Fringe Sport, but Andrew Bridgen the other week, MP, who stood up. Um, and what, what has that been like, kind of connecting with people outside your your normal area, the area you've known, to stepping out into other spheres and engaging with people from completely different sectors? Because then you've, that's yeah. a different type of conversation. It's a, a very different um, time, and it's been it's been brilliant. Um, you know, I got to meet Pat Cash in person, uh, which was lovely um, in November, uh, and to get to speak to all these kind of people um, who my my path would never have crossed with um, uh, if you know I'd chosen to stay silent and stay in the media and keep picking up my money from Sky. Uh, I probably would never have met um, such wonderful people. Um, you know yourself included, Pete. You know we've we've uh, got got to know all sorts of of people who just didn't think I probably had anything in common with. Uh, however, 
uh, we have a, a, an incredible bond that we do have this thing in common, which means we want to fight for our freedom and we don't want to be taken over by a, a tyrannical government. And I think that's an incredibly strong bond to have with people. Um, and so uh, that's been, again, uh, a really uplifting part of it. And the worst part about it all is that, listen, I'm, I'm big enough and ugly enough to take any criticism, to take anything on social media that people, the keyboard warriors who think that they can they can uh, annoy me by going, oh, you're a tinfoil hat wearer and all that kind of stuff. I, I see I, that, that's water off ducks back to me. The, the worst bit was, was kind of it affected my family for a little bit. Yeah. You know, it affected the people around me more than it affected me um uh, and so you know it took a little bit of time i think to to convince those people around me that i wasn't mad um and when things started happening and they saw that what i was saying uh, was actually starting to try to be implemented you know things like mandatory vaccinations the um uh, vaccine passports all that kind of stuff uh, and i think once they saw that starting to come down the line they, they went oh blimey actually maybe we should have listened to him a little bit um, so, uh, so yeah, that's been an interesting, um, thing to watch evolve, uh, over the months as well. And, um, but the fight still goes on, you know, there's still a lot left to do. Um, these globalists are not going to go away quietly. Um, and that's why I'm, I'm still going to be here, still going to be fighting, still going to try and alert people to what's going on, um, and try to make sure there's enough of us on this side of the argument that they can't implement their plans. And it doesn't look as though it's slowing down. I, I keep, in moments of weakness, I think, oh, maybe the, the worst has passed. <laughs> maybe it's okay. <laughs> and then you read, like today, China saying, actually, COVID is out of control. And there are queues of hundreds of vehicles trying to get to crematoriums. And, and suddenly, we're being prepped for something coming whether or not that is true that's not the issue it's actually what does this story mean it's prepping yeah it's prepping yeah. absolutely and and the thing is well this is the, the other thing i was always taught growing up right and, and everyone in the in the media are like oh you know never believe anything comes out of china because it's all propaganda yeah. don't ever believe it right and then all of a sudden in march 2020 everyone's like oh my god look at china we gotta do what they're doing and you're like hang on a minute, you've just been telling us for the last 50 years that everything is propaganda coming out of there, and now all of a sudden you're going, let's copy what they're doing because they're so honest. And they just think, oh, my God, what are, you, what are you doing? Crackers, world went mad, 2020. It's crazy. And, and the role of the media, I mean, you, you touched on there are different parts of the media, but one part is I think you've learned how brutal they can be um, against you for speaking out. Or I remember seeing that in my UKIP days, seeing how the media would just harass and destroy individuals. And whatever makes a story, doesn't matter how you get there. Uh, and I think you've also been at that where Matt Letizier cannot succeed in what he's doing. He's now dangerous and, and they go for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um... I don't think they. I think they probably underestimate um, just how strong my mentality is, um, and so they can go for me as much as they want. But I ain't going anywhere. Um, I ain't bowing down to their cancel culture. Um, uh, and you know, I always try to be balanced in stuff that I say um, because that's kind of part of my. Part of my character is, you know, I'm a Libra and we love balance. We love to to listen to both sides of the story and then, and then kind of make our own minds up. Uh, and that's how I think the world should be. Um, and I will not 
uh, veer off of that course just because uh, there's a few hacks in the media who uh, are getting paid a few hundred pounds to do a hatchet job on my character. Uh, because quite frankly, um, if I trod in some dog dirt, um, I'd probably be more worried about the dog dirt on my shoe than I would about these journalists because they are, uh, they've sold, they've sold their souls basically, um, is what's happened. Uh, and I have no time for them whatsoever. It's, it's been phenomenal over the last couple of years getting to meet people and you realize people like yourself, uh, people like Fred and Richard <laughs> Fairbrass, uh, people like uh, that met Robert Malone a few weeks ago, uh, but you come across people on there, you think this is the last person you should actually, it's not rah-rah, it's gentle, calm, reserved. And it's just weird how the media can project someone who doesn't exist. And when you read some of the stories, you think these people must be so dangerous and aggressive and violent. And then you meet them and think, just nice normal daughter people um, and again you've I, I assume you've kind of found the same as you've connected with people very as we've so. all fought against this COVID tyranny yeah very much so you know there were people who have, have taken their hits in the in the media I mean you touched on the UKIP thing there you know I've, uh, I've met Nigel Farage a couple of times um, you know apparently meeting someone a couple of times makes them your best friends as well <laughs> in this day and age I don't know if, I don't know if you've known that uh, but apparently, me and Nigel are best friends now. Um, I always I, knew that. I interviewed him. <laughs> he interviewed me, uh, and uh, we were at uh, a function together in November. And <laughs> and apparently, that makes us best buddies. Um, but uh, it's really interesting how people will try to they try to discredit anything that you say, but they don't always try to actually discredit what you say. They'll they'll make up a different argument to try and discredit you. So they'll they'll say, oh, we. Well, you spoke to him, you spoke to that person, so that means what you're saying is a load of rubbish because you spoke to him and he speaks rubbish, so you must be speaking rubbish as well. Um, and it, it's just been fascinating to watch the uh, the trolls and the bots and the 77th Brigade uh, on Twitter try to turn uh, arguments when you post something and they completely ignore what you've posted and they start you, they want to try and start you on an argument about a different thing that you might have said like a year ago or Ah, uh, well, you spoke to him, so you know you you can't be trusted. You can't be taken seriously. So, what I would say to people is is just take each uh, each conversation, each each bit that you're talking about. Just take that on its merits, uh, and just talk about that subject. Um, and if you want to start a different argument, you know, go off on a different thread, say something else. Um, but just take each subject. You can't just say, "Oh, well." That person, I agree with him on that on that one subject. So now I'm going to agree with him on everything he says. Or you can go, oh, well, I don't agree with him on that. So he must be a bad person because I don't agree with him, and I'm not going to agree with anything else he ever says ever again. Now that's not the way the world works. No two humans, if you gave them a hundred subjects each, yeah. would agree on every on every subject. So just you know, take each subject um, on its own merits. Make up your own mind. Uh, and don't be swayed by just because somebody has a different opinion to you on one subject doesn't mean they're talking rubbish on another one. Well, I've really loved actually connect with people and finding what you agree on as opposed to disagree. Mm. And I think maybe in politics, it was looking at what you disagree on and 
beating the crap out of someone else. But I, I remember one time having Gareth Icon, and I remember making the comment that he would have a Palestinian flag on his profile. I'd probably have an Israeli flag on mine. Uh, but actually, we would put that aside and actually converse on the, the COVID issue and how that's affected us. Um, and uh, you probably find the same, that you can sit with people who maybe you disagree with on half a dozen things passionately, but actually you can connect with things you agree on. That's yeah. much more interesting to find the commonality instead of the differences. That's, that's exactly right. You know, we, we should, and I think this is one of the things that has, has been very clever in how, you know, the, the government and and the people that run the government, um, how they divide people and how they, how they choose to divide people. And they're very clever in the way that they go about it and they try to, you know, separated by race, uh, by religion, uh, all sorts of stuff. They'll, they'll, you know, by your, your your sex. You know, all the LGBTQ stuff. Anything they will use, they will you will use to try to divide them because what they what they could not handle and what they know that they cannot handle is a populace of people who are together as one. Uh, because when that happens, everybody starts to look at where the real problems are in in, in the world, uh, and that is in our government and in the people that run our governments. No, and we've seen that through the massive demos. And I remember even having Piers Corbyn on interview and thinking that this is a really strange situation, but hey, you go with it. Um, and what was that like? I mean, Pints with Nigel on GB News. Again, those kind of ideas of right and left seem to have gone, and it's those who want freedom and those who accept whatever tyranny we get thrown at us. But doing something like Pints with Nigel on the GB News set, and I remember seeing some of those clips that really went very wide. Uh, what was, what's that been like? Uh, well, it was just nice for me to actually um, know that I was uh, on a TV channel, live on a TV channel, where they couldn't censor what I was going to say. Yeah. Um, and that I could get my point of view across, and I could let people see, because sometimes you get you get the wrong impression when you just read what somebody writes on a tweet or on a post uh, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think if you actually hear somebody seeing it and you see their face when they're saying it, people can see what kind of person you are and how genuine you are about what you're about what you're saying. Um, so for me, that was a, a good opportunity. I would just wish it would have lasted longer. I had so much more I wanted to say. <laughs> but it just it all seemed to go by in a blur. Um, but I managed to get out, you know, a few things that I wanted to get off my chest. And uh, and people seemed to appreciate that um, they could see that my heart was in the right place and that uh, and that I'm not a, a nasty um, granny killer uh, and, a, and an anti-vaxxer and all that nonsense. Um, and so it was, it was just good to actually, you know, be able to to put my points of view across in a in a calm manner. Looking ahead, as you continue to uh, be part of the lead of this charge, uh, especially with probably COVID restrictions coming back big time, um, those interviews you've had. I mean, tell us about some of them that stand out. Let let, let the viewers know kind of some of the ones they've missed that then they should go back and and find and watch. Oh yeah, um, so I would say Mike Eden, um, yeah. Yeah. Doctor Mike Eden, is the one that's had the most views I think so far, yeah. um, uh, and that was a few months back. But you can get all of you go onto the media section of my Getter profile; uh, all the interviews are there. Um, so he was he was a fascinating one. He called out people like Witty and Van Tam, yeah. uh, all those guys. Uh, you know, asked them for a debate. You know, threatened. You know, asked them to sue him. If, they, if what he was saying wasn't right, 
Uh, and that's that's for me is a real key thing. Mike Eden has been really brave in what he's come out and said, yeah. uh, and he's backed it up, and he's and he's thrown down the gauntlet to these people in authority. Now these people in authority have access to as much money as they want, so they could sue him and not even think twice about it. Mm. But not one of them has chosen to go after him. Yeah. Now that tells me one thing. He's bang on the money, and they have no argument against him, and that's why they won't debate him, and that's why they won't sue him. Um, so he was one of the one of the really brilliant ones. Um, <clears throat> John O'Looney uh, was another one. The Undertaker, who uh, has been blowing the whistle on what he's been seeing in 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 the dead people. Uh, I mean, it's pretty difficult to argue against uh, a man who's uh, right at the coalface in what's happening, uh, and some of the information that he gave was pretty shocking. Um, and uh, recently, more recently, Andrew Bridgen on, on Boxing Day. Uh, that one has uh, has done pretty well as well. That's pretty pretty close to the, the amount of views that um, Mike Eden had. Yeah. Uh, but there's been loads of, of other stuff, and that's not always. But as you say, I've done, I've done sportsmen as well, so I've I've kind of ventured into you know the world of tennis with Pat Cash, uh, the world of football with Trevor Sinclair, uh, the world of golf with Richard Bland. Um, so you know, there's been there's been other things, but the ones that that get the most traction. Are talking about the the, the COVID stuff and uh, uh, and some of the nonsense that's gone on and uh, yeah, there's been some some great guests. I urge everyone to go and have a have a little look um, at my media section uh, on Getter and just you know if you if you're bored and you've got an hour to spare, um, please go and take a look at, at some of the the really good people that have uh, have been on there. Uh, as you have, um, Dr. Peter McCullough, uh, who you know was incredible. Ivor Cummings was probably one of my favourite ones as well. Oh yeah. Ivor was just one of the cleverest men that I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. Honestly, the man's brain is just huge. Um, uh, and so I really, really enjoyed sitting and listening to him. He spoke so much sense. And there must be something to do with that Irish accent as well. He's just kind of quite soothing, like yourself, Pete. <laughs> Thank you. Lull you to sleep, one or the other. <laughs> and if I, just finally, what what else gets you... Pasha, you've obviously talked a lot about the the COVID tyranny. You've waded in and you've done the the awful heinous crime of not uh, walking in footstep with the Ukraine mantra. Um, yeah. But what what else kind of gets your goat or gets you frustrated or passionate? Um. You have to stir some other things up. Don't stop there. Come on, man. Sport, sport has been sport has been my life basically uh, up until the last couple of years, um, when I, I suddenly found out that uh, I, I don't like the government interfering too much in my life. Um, and so, uh, you know, golf is a is a huge passion of mine. Um, so that gets me stirred up. I, love, I watch a lot of golf. I play a lot of golf. Um, so I'm, I'm still desperate at 54 years of age to. Uh, try and get my handicap down to scratch, which is, you know, so, uh, it's been an ambition of mine since I retired from football. Um, at the moment, I sit at 1.7. Um, so it's it's getting there, but it's going to take a, a little bit of time still. Um, I, I still I still go and watch my, my football team play. Um, although I have to admit, uh, probably the, the wider um, aspect of, of football is um, I'm not quite as interested as I used to be. Uh, I think there's a, a little bit too much virtue signaling going on for my liking. Um, and, and I think sometimes uh, money is kind of almost threatening to ruin the sport. 
um, if I'm honest. So, uh, so that's a little bit disappointing. But yeah, that's kind of sport. Is, I, I watch a lot of sport. Watching the darts at the moment. Love the darts. Um, maybe you should do some walking talks on. There's a lot of walking on the golf course. So, ha- have you thought of doing some live streams as you walk from hole to hole? Uh, I hadn't actually, but I might. I might start doing that. Yeah. yeah. I, I I had one guest on a month or two ago, and every Sunday she does an hour live stream, just walking and talking and giving her thoughts. So, there okay. you, go. you could do that on the golf course. Why not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like to concentrate on my golf. To be honest with you. <laughs> I like to be distracted when I'm on the golf course. <laughs> You're just whacking a ball and talking is fine. Go oh, on. there's more to it than that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fine. Very intense game. Um, but I've I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, watching your interviews and watching you engage and watching you stir things up. So thank you for coming on today and sharing what you're up to um, and informing our viewers. So thank you for your time. Good to talk to you, Pete. Thank you. And just let me finish off with our viewers. We'll be back with you on Monday with Calvin. Calvin Robinson's joined us on Monday. So tune in for that. And on that, I'll wish our viewers and listeners a wonderful rest of your day. And we'll see you back on Monday with Calvin. So thank you and goodbye. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list. Donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.